0: please turn with me again to the fifth book of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy uh, chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9, we'll read from uh, verse 25 into chapter 10, verse 11. So again, Deuteronomy 9, beginning in verse 25. This is uh, the word of the living God. Let's hear what he has to say to his people today. This is Moses speaking. So I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights, because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you have brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. At that time, the Lord said to me, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain, and make an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood, and cut two tablets of stone like the first, and went up the mountain with the two tablets in my hand, and he wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before the Ten Commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made, and there they are as the Lord commanded me. There's this parenthetical comment. The people of Israel journeyed from biroth Ben jakon to Mazerah. There Aaron died, and there he was buried. And his son, Eliezer, ministered as priest in his place. From there they journeyed to Gadgadah, and from Gadgadah to Jothba, Jothbatha, a land with brooks of water. At that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. I myself stayed on the mountain, as at the first time, forty days and forty nights, and the Lord listened to me, That time also, the Lord was unwilling to destroy you. And the Lord said to me, arise, go on your journey at the head of the people so that they may go in and possess the land, which I swore to give to their fathers, which I swore to their fathers to give to them. Why should we pray? You ever ask that question? After all, if God is sovereign, if he already knows all things, why should we pray? As Christians, especially as Reformed Christians, we gladly confess the truth that our God reigns. He, he rules over all things, great and small. Nothing thwarts his promises or his purposes Scripture says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The prophet Isaiah declares that that God uh, declares the end from the beginning. And Jesus himself said, as we saw a few moments ago, that your father in heaven knows what you need before you ask. So again, why pray? Why should we pray? If God has already decreed what comes to pass, what is the point of prayer? Well, of course, uh, Scripture commands us to pray, and that's reason enough. Luke 18:1 says we ought always to pray and not lose heart. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 famously says, Pray without ceasing. And Ephesians 6.18 says that we ought to pray at all times with all kinds of prayers and supplications. But again, why? What does prayer actually accomplish? Or is it, is it just a religious therapeutic exercise? Is it just meant to align our hearts with God? It certainly does that but is there more going on what does prayer actually do and I think in our passage today we discover prayer does a great deal prayer is powerful because God listens to prayer we could go as far as to say prayer can do by extension whatever God wills to do For God not only ordains the end, he also ordains the means. And prayer is one of the primary means, one of the secondary causes by which God achieves all his holy will. And so I'd like us to explore this classic example of intercessory prayer in two parts. First, the intercessory prayer of Moses At the end of chapter 9. And then the Lord's response in chapter 10 verses 1 through 11. One of the most striking aspects of Moses' intercessory prayer. Is that it takes place in the form of an intense argument. Now not argument in the sense of conflicting views or opposing views. Uh, this heated exchange between opponents, but argument in the sense of a set of reasons with the aim of persuading God to a course of action. Moses doesn't think for a second, well, God is sovereign, so why should I bother praying for the people of Israel? He passionately pleads a case and prays for God's people, appealing to God's purposes to his promises, and to the glory of his own name among the nations. And he is attempting to persuade God not to go through with his threat to destroy the Israelites for their sin. And I think there's a great deal we can learn about prayer. But then I also think there's a great deal we can learn this morning about what it means that we have a mediator who has ascended a different mountain and who lives to make intercession for us. And so with those two ideas in mind, let's think first of all about prayer. And we learn at the start that we should argue with God in prayer. At the very least, that much is clear from Moses' prayer. We should argue with God. If you want to pray biblically, you must pray argumentatively. Now that might sound surprising, maybe even a bit impious, but let's not be sanctimonious here. After all, I doubt that a single one of us here this morning has more reverence or esteem for God than the man Moses, who Hebrews says was faithful in all of God's house. Um. Uh, Or as the book of Numbers, chapter 12, verse 3, famously says, Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. And so perhaps our reluctance or our failure to argue with God in prayer is not, in fact, a sign of humility, but a sign of our spiritual indifference. Could it be? Could it be that taking God seriously... And arguing with God in prayer is actually a greater act of humility than not arguing with him in prayer. Brothers and sisters, one of the things I'm trying to confront here is a reality that I've come up against again and again in our own Reformed communion. There is a lot of fatalism floating around in Reformed communion churches today that often masquerades as faith in God's sovereignty. I wonder if you've ever seen this. We, we celebrate God's sovereignty, but it is so easy for a distorted understanding of sovereignty to creep in and to produce this kind of dismissive fatalism, consigning ourselves to fate. But biblically, belief in God's sovereignty doesn't ever result in in fatalism in fact one of the primary things a belief in God's sovereignty produces is fervent prayer like the one we find here if God is sovereign and listens to the prayers of his people and those prayers really make a difference in the outworking of God's providence and plan as we see here then, then why, why would we ever want to neglect the privilege of prayer? You know, few people were more acquainted or better acquainted with the awesome sovereignty of God than Moses was. This was the man who, who watched firsthand God overcome the greatest superpower of the world at that time. This is the man who watched Israel walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. This is the man who ate manna from heaven and drank from the rock. This is the man who saw inferior Israel chase off foreign armies. Moses was well aware of the sovereign power of God. And yet few men have ever dared to argue more vigorously with God than Moses. So let's take a closer look at this. Let's let's be clear, there is no lack of reverence or awe on Moses' part. You notice how Moses begins. Moses begins by throwing his body down on the ground and laying prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. I I can't even wrap my mind around that, to be honest with you. But notice what he's doing bodily. He's laying down before the Lord. And this is a reminder, among other things, that our bodies, what we do with our bodies is significant, is an important part of our engagement with God. Throughout scripture, we read about the the postures of God's people when they are at prayer and when they are in worship. And the Bible teaches us that prayer is something that ought to engage our entire existence because we are ensouled bodies and embodied souls that is what we are as human beings we are a psychosomatic unity and so throughout scripture we read about people laying prostrate before the lord kneeling standing looking up to heaven with raised hands lifting up holy hands in prayer and and, and other different physical postures in the acts of worship and prayer in particular. And in each of these different postures is, is meaningful, it's significant, and it's meant to express what is going on in the heart of men and women. Kneeling in prayer is, for example, taking a low, humble position. It can be an expression of, dependence on the lord we see jesus himself doing this in the garden of gethsemane when he when he falls to the ground and he he kneels before his heavenly father he's expressing his dependence on god paul after uh, telling his friends of his departure knelt down with the elders to pray in acts chapter 20 other places we read about sitting standing raising our hands and other postures throughout scripture David sits before the Lord Solomon stands with hands raised praying on behalf of the people Paul exhorts Timothy and and other leaders in the church to pray to lift up holy hands and pray now let's be let's be careful here and Make this this important qualification: prayer is not made more effectual by our body posture, right? Whether we're kneeling or sitting or standing, right? Just like our prayer is not made more effective by the amount of words that we speak or the the eloquence of our speech. Posture in prayer is not some kind of uh, magical thing that makes prayer more efficacious, more effective. That being said, we are to pray from our heart with all that we are. And not, not just, it's, it's not just a mental thing. It's not just something that engages our mouths. What we do with our bodies in prayer ought to be a reflection of the disposition of our hearts. And so, brothers and sisters, I don't think we should overly spiritualize our prayer and, and worship and, and think that it's only a matter of the, the inner person. Yeah, to, to be honest with you, I think that's been a, a, one of the weaknesses of, of our own tradition, a, a tendency in that direction. But the Bible is clear, we worship the Lord with all that we are, because as Paul puts it, our bodies are for the Lord. And so to get right down to it, it's entirely appropriate to kneel before the Lord when we confess our sin to express humbling ourselves before God it's it's appropriate to stand at attention the reading of God's word to express our attentiveness and our receptiveness it's appropriate for us to you know we're we're used to every head bowed and every eye closed when actually in scripture the the uh Predominant posture is looking up to heaven with eyes wide open to express, this is where our help comes from. It's entirely appropriate to, with open hands, receive the benediction as God's blessing to his people. It's, extending this a little further, entirely appropriate for the Lord's Supper to look like a meal. That God's people are sharing with the Lord Jesus Christ because that in reality is what it is. All right? So, with this in mind, Moses lays prostrate before the Lord, showing his reverence and dependence on God. And I just want to suggest that there's some things we need to learn from that. But what about the content of his prayer? What, is, what does Moses actually say? notice that his prayer, if you distill it down, it basically contains two arguments. One looks to the past and one looks to the future. And in that sense, it's an all-encompassing prayer. So first, in verse 27, Moses looks back on God's covenant promises and pleads with the Lord to spare Israel for the sake of his servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is this is his basic argument, and this is a lesson for prayer: to take God's promises and to pray them back to Him, to plead the promises of God. Understand, prayer is not asking for anything we want willy-nilly. Prayer is not a magic a rabbit's foot that we carry around as some kind of magical device to get whatever we want as our catechism puts it prayer is offering up to the lord the desires of our heart for things agreeable to his will right and so this is how we should argue with god by marshalling all of god's covenant commitments and pleading his promises in prayer let's let's make this really practical right some of us have children who grew up in the church heard the gospel and there are no signs of faith or repentance let me suggest there's no better place for us to bring the promises of God to bear than this for God says the promise is for you and for your children so we we should be bold in interceding on their behalf. We should be bold in praying this promise on behalf of our children for we have been authorized by God's own word to pray in this way, to appeal to God on the basis of his promise where he says, I will be be your God. I will establish my covenant with you and your seed after you. Throughout all generations. Now, of course, our dispensational brothers and sisters would say, well, God God made that promise to Abraham and his physical descendants. That That doesn't apply to us. But Paul in Galatians 3, chapter 19, says that if you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. And so we should not hesitate to claim all of God's promises which are for you and for your kids after you. You should marshal that promise in prayer. You see, at the end of the day, Reformed theology, it is is inherently practical in nature when things look really bleak and dark for your kids and you feel completely helpless when you realize that they are their own person and you can't change them, you can't direct them, this is precisely when we ought to pray that God would make our prodigal sons and daughters shine like bright stars in Abraham's sky because that is what he promised to do. This is an argument we are authorized to bring before God. It is, in fact, an act of humility to conform our prayers to God's will in this way. So we can pray with authorization from God himself something like this. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, please have mercy and spare our covenant children for the sake of your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We pray this for All of our covenant children here at Trinity, remember your promise, which is not only for us, but for them. Do not be a God to us only, but to our children after us and to their children and their children's children. For your word tells us that our children are holy. They have been set apart for you. They belong to you. Save them, Lord, for they are yours. This is how we should argue with God on the basis of his covenant promises and word. And so Moses Moses relies on God's promises and prayer. But secondly, the the next thing I want you to see is in verse 28. He he pleads with the Lord to spare Israel on the basis of the Lord's own reputation. Did you catch that? He, He looks back to the promises and the fathers. Now he looks forward to, to, the, to the honor of God's name among the nations. For the sake of his glory among all peoples. And again, this is how we should argue with God. Moses imagines a hypothetical situation. He says, Lord, imagine what, what, what's going to happen if you destroy your heritage. If you blot them out and you start over with me, imagine what the people back in Egypt are going to say. They're going to say something like, well, the Lord was strong enough to get them out of Egypt to take them into the wilderness, but his arm was too short to get the job done. And so they just perished in the wilderness. You see what Moses is doing. He's not simply arguing with God on the basis of the covenant. He's going a step further By appealing to God on the even deeper basis of God's character. Moses is drilling down into God's eternal purpose. Which is to uphold the honor and glory of his own name. Which brothers and sisters, God has freely linked to the good of his people. So Moses understands God's going to do this. This prayer cannot fail because this is an irrefutable argument. Think about what Moses is, is doing. He's asking God to relent. Here's one of the paradoxes of prayer here. He's asking God to relent by being consistent with himself. By being true to his word and his heart towards his people moses is appealing to god to be consistent with himself which may just be a significant clue to the dynamic of all genuine intercessory prayer think about what malachi chapter 3 verse 6 says the lord declares listen to this i the lord do not change therefore O children of jacob you are not consumed I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you are not consumed. Before all else, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. See, the most powerful prayer that we can pray, nothing motivates God more than the honor of his name, which he has freely attached to the eternal good of his people. Nothing motivates God more than the honor and glory of his name. And he has freely linked that, his honor and glory, he has staked his honor and glory on you. Think about that. He has staked his eternal honor and glory on your eternal good. In Christ, God's eternal glory has been united with his people's eternal good. These two things are inextricably linked in the gospel we see that's why we read a portion of Romans chapter 8 earlier where Paul is is uh, reveling in the wonder of God's plan in the gospel that all those whom he foreknew he he called and all those whom he called he justified and all those he justified he glorified so who's going to bring any charge against God elect who's going to condemn it's Jesus Christ who died And more than that, who is raised and is ascended to the right hand of God, who lives to, to make intercession for us. So brothers and sisters, will that prayer fail? No. And so we ought to pray as the psalmists do. We ought to use this deepest of all logic in prayer. Listen to Psalm 79 verses 9 and 10. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. See, our salvation and the glory of God's name have been united in God's sovereign purposes revealed in the gospel of his son. Another verse. Deliver us and atone for our sin for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? You see, the psalmist is making the very same argument that Moses was making on the mountain. And this is what we ought to pray. Appealing to God's eternal glory, which has been united to our eternal good in Jesus Christ. So we can say, help us, O God, for the sake of your name, for the glory of your name, deliver us. This is what we we ought to pray whenever we feel defeated by sin in our lives unable to conquer some, some sinful habit, some form of bondage or addiction in our lives because God is motivated by his glory which is attached to your eternal good. He wants to see an end to that sin in your life. We can cry out, help me, O God, God of my salvation, for the glory of your name, deliver me. This is, this is a powerful argument and it is fully authorized By scripture. Let me me make one other connection here. Before we get to the second part of this passage. That we'll cover briefly. Because God has given us further assurance. Of this good news. Through the waters of baptism. I wonder if you've already made this connection. In your mind. Remember your baptism. What took place in your baptism. You were baptized. Into the name of. Of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. His name was placed upon you. And you can appeal to him on the basis of that name. We see in baptism that we have another assurance of this kind of argument. For if you were baptized, you carry the Lord's name upon you. This is how Moses prayed for Israel. When God threatens to destroy them for their sin... He prays for the glory of God's name to be manifest in the good of God's people before the sight of all nations. And that is how we ought to pray for ourselves, for our kids, and for others. That brings us to the second part of our passage today in chapter 10, where Moses records the Lord's response by saying, The Lord listened to me at that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. I wonder do you see do you see the larger picture? Do you see the pattern that is emerging in this passage and what it means for us? Remember the occasion. God God has redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them to Mount Sinai in order ultimately to lead them into a good and spacious land where God would dwell. In their midst, but in the passage we looked at last week, we saw that it was all going wrong because the people of God were were idolatrous and stiff necked and proud. Even at Horeb, you remember, even at Mount Sinai, the very place where God made a covenant with Israel. No sooner did Israel fashion an idol and bow down. Israel truly did deserve. Judgment. In objective terms, Israel deserved the wrath of God. But Moses prayed for them, and because Moses ascended the mountain, because he made intercession, the Lord was pleased to renew the covenant, to rewrite the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, and to continue on leading his people. To the promised land. That's the big picture. And you see what it means for us I hope. We are those who have been redeemed. Out of of sin and death. The Lord has brought us to himself. We have have been uh, uh, brought into an even better covenant. Sealed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet like we saw last week. Or just like the Israelites. So often prideful, given over to idolatry, stiff-necked, slow to listen. And yet we have one greater than Moses, who has ascended the mountain, has entered into the Holy of Holies to make intercession for us. You see the picture? You see the good news in this passage Notice a couple of other things. Notice how in these verses the Lord renews his covenant with Israel after the episode of the golden calf by symbolically, he does it symbolically by rewriting the Ten Commandments on those tablets of stone after Moses had smashed the first edition. And notice how he places these tablets in the Ark of the Covenant See, the Lord not only responds to Moses by telling him something, but by showing his people something through these symbolic actions. And one of the things I think we're meant to understand for this is the Lord, the Lord does not give up on his law. Right? His willingness to forgive and to relent does not negate the moral requirement of the law. The covenant is renewed and the Ten Commandments remain binding and they are they're literally etched in stone by the finger of God to make the point clear. And this warns us about the 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 error of what has historically been called antinomianism. Antinomianism denies the abiding authority and significance of God's law and its applicability to the life of faith. See God's mercy though is meant to lead us to repentance, and call us to a life obeying God's commands. His mercy is not licensed to disregard the law. But then in verses 6 through 9, there's something really, I think, so extraordinary in that parenthetical passage right? that that records uh, the people's, basically, a travel log on their way to the promised land. But within that, you read about Aaron's death the high priest Aaron, he dies, and his son Eleazar takes his place. and you also read about the, the sons of Levi and their ministry before the Lord. So what, what is the point of this? What is the point of this parenthetical side note? Well, among other things, it first and foremost, irrefutably shows us the grace of God. It shows us that God is gracious. Why are we getting all of this info about Moses, or excuse me, Aaron's death? And the Levites and their special service to the Lord? Well, remember, because Aaron's life and his place, his service as high priest was was brought into question. He, after all, as the spiritual leader of the people, was the one who fashioned the golden calf. And instructed the people to have a festival before it and and worship. Right? What, What do we see, though, in these verses? We see Aaron, the high priest... He didn't die on the spot. He continued to serve the Lord. He lived on and Moses records his death to show God really does listen. God really is merciful. God really does answer prayers because Moses said he not only prayed for the Israelites, he also prayed for Aaron. And the Levites continued to be used by God in their service. They continued to be set apart. They continued to have the best inheritance of God's people which was not a plot of land in Canaan but God himself and so you see this parenthetical side note it really is profound God God insists on his law he he writes the law again he is not relenting of any of his requirements for his redeemed people and yet he reminds them that he is unspeakably gracious he still uses people when they have completely blown it and praise God for that he he still he still gives himself to people who have given themselves to idols and I think it's also finally instructive to to meditate on the symbolism of the ten commandments and their place within the ark of the covenant now just remember really quick here for old testament Israel You find a a number of concentric circles when it comes to designating sacred space. Okay, So start with the land of Canaan. uh, The holy land that God chose among all of the plots of land on earth to be a special place in the old covenant. And then within the land of Canaan, the holy city of Jerusalem. And then within the city of Jerusalem, you have the Temple Mount. And then within the temple itself, you have different graded courts of holiness. And at the very center of the temple, which really in light of Leviticus, we should understand is the center of all reality. In the very holy of holies, what do you find? Well, you have the Ark of the Covenant with the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments placed within them that ought to tell us again about the the centrality and seriousness of of god's law clearly god takes his law very seriously for he puts it at the very center of the holy of holies but the ark of uh, of the covenant was was with the law inside of it was not the only thing at the center of reality Uh, for exodus 25 17 we read the ark of the covenant Remember what it's called there? It's called the mercy seat, which the book of Hebrews refers to as the throne of grace. So ask yourself, what's at the very heart and center of all reality? What is at, if you if you dug down to the core, what do you find at the center of what's real? The Bible says the mercy seat of God. The throne of grace. You know what's, what's real? Who can we trust? What will we find when we get to the bottom of everything? What do we find at the place where the blood is sprinkled? The mercy seat. What we find, symbolized in the Ark of the Covenant, is the one who graciously gives what he demands. That's what we find. We find the one who gives what he demands. And he does so in the one who has tabernacled or templed among us in the flesh of his son. The one who has faithfully and perfectly kept the law. And this is why Hebrews can say, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let's hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with, with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you do you see what the message of the scriptures is for us today, beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ? We have a high priest who is like us in every way apart from sin. And he has fulfilled all righteousness. He has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And he has passed through the heavens into the very throne room of God. To the throne of grace. And that means for us today, right now. God keeps going with us. Because we have Jesus who lives to make intercession for us. And because of him, we can come boldly before the throne of grace and argue with God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made a way of of access for us to enter into your presence and to cast ourselves before you, pleading your promises and your goodwill to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would make us a a people of prayer, give us a, a spirit of prayer individually and congregationally. And we thank you and rejoice in this wonderful truth that in Jesus Christ, we have one who has ascended the mountain for our sake and has and is, and will continue to make intercession for us. And because of that, Lord, we are not destroyed. Because of that, we have life in him. And so we thank you, and we pray all of these things in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.